Kirby's. Thank you for joining us today. I am Mary Scott Hunter here with Rachel Briers and Liz Bashirs. As always, we start by thanking our Patreon subscribers. We will always bring you as high quality content as we can for free, but it's not free to produce this show. And we very much appreciate those of you who help us by subscribing at patreon.com slash bellkirkpod at any of the levels that we offer. Today, we want to spend some time discussing race and racism, as well as reconciliation and options for reform. We've carefully chosen three guests whose perspectives and views are important as our country mourns the death of George Floyd and really all those who have been victims of injustice. Mr. Dana Gillis holds multiple degrees and certifications from James Madison University. I've been there. It's beautiful. It's just like this little gym tucked away in Virginia. It's gorgeous. <laughs> Duke, Southern Cal, Northwestern. And for today's discussion, we'll be asking him to draw in particular on his 24-year career as a special agent with the FBI and his master's studies at the University of Cambridge in criminology and police management. Currently, Dana is a senior consultant at Transcend, an organizational consulting company. Uh, we will provide in the show notes a, li- a, a link to his LinkedIn, and you can find his consulting company, Transcend, at leadfearlessly.com. We'll provide a link to that as well. Thank you for being with us, Dana. Uh, my pleasure, Liz. Thank you. Travis Collins is the senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Huntsville, Alabama. He served as a missionary in Nigeria and Venezuela. First Baptist is a large church with an iconic facade. Here in Huntsville, the beautiful mosaic on the front is affectionately called Egg Beater Jesus. <laughs> uh, and I just love the way the congregation has adopted that. Uh, you see t-shirts around town that say, whisk, you were here, whisk, you were here, get it? Uh, more importantly, the church strives to be a church at the heart of the city, known for neighborhood focus, relational discipleship, radical hospitality, connection with young adults, and enthusiasm for fresh expressions of church. Welcome, Travis Collins. It is my honor to be here. And while we're still on the introductions, I want to point out that Dana was the drum major at one of the best bands in the country at JMU. I don't want that to get by. Oh, nice. <laughs> that's good stuff, Travis. <laughs> the secret is out. The secret is out. <laughs> oh, love it. And, and Daniel Casimbiro, who's a good friend of mine, is the executive director of one of the largest YMCAs in the state of Alabama. He has served in that position for more than five years. In that time, Daniel is really overseeing the financial turnaround, growth, expansion, and explosion of membership in that branch. He and his team, which I love each one of them, they're all special people. They are multi-year winners at our Chamber of Commerce's Best in Business Awards. And Daniel was the 2019 winner of the Chamber's Community Servant of the Year Award. And to know Daniel, that is just the perfect award for him. He is such a servant leader, and uh, he's really just spent his time in leadership positions at Alabama A&M, United Way, and I, I also consider him just a wonderful mentor. I've learned so much from him, and I actually don't know anyone except maybe Liz. This is fun to have y'all on the podcast together who reads as many books as Daniel does in a year. He's just a prolific reader. So welcome, Daniel. Oh, thank you very much, Rachel. And uh, I, the same is back to you. And she can tell you the, the, the pages I read, only books I read are 10 pages long. So that's all we can learn. It counts, it counts. <laughs> I'll just jump right in. Um, Travis, we all, we watched your talk, your sermon um, on the steps of the courthouse, and we'll provide a link to that in our show notes. But would you please talk with us about the analogy you began with and your moving forward theme? 
Yeah, so in the early spring on NPR, they interviewed a lady. The topic was grief, but she had lost her father and then within six weeks lost her husband after a long bout with cancer. And some people tried to say helpful things to her, but she said the least helpful and most hurtful thing that people said to her was, move on, just move on. You'll learn how to move on. And she said, I didn't want to move on. That sounded like I was forgetting those people who had meant so much to me and who had, had had such an influence in my life. I did, she say, want to move forward, which meant picking up and taking with her the, that part of her past. She did move forward, eventually remarried, and uh, they had children and so on. But, but she didn't just move on. And so I wrote in our uh, church newsletter what I thought was an apt analogy. There are a lot of really good people, white people, who say, why don't we just move on? Let's just forget um, the past and you know, let's just move on. And so then when I was invited to speak at the commemoration of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, the bloody uh, Sunday back in 65, I used that because I said, um, you know, this is part of our past. We can't just move on. We have to we have to deal with it. In fact, I interviewed Dana last week for our church's broadcast, and he said something, and Dana, you'll have to help me, but he said, um, you know, we're not necessarily responsible for what happened in the past, but we do have to acknowledge it and deal with it. So there's some things from our past, like, um, you know, the uninformed theories of intelligence that said European people are innately more intelligent than everybody else. That shapes us today. I mean, that not many people would articulate that and say, yeah, that shapes my thinking, but we are shaped by that. We're shaped by Jim Crow era practices. And so, you know, we've got to, we've got to deal with that and, 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 um, and take it with us. Not that we get stuck there. That lady didn't get stuck. There's a difference between, mm -hmm. you know, uh, moving forward and getting stuck. I'm not talking about getting stuck, but I am saying being shaped, letting our future be shaped by those things, even the painful things in our past. So it, you, you mentioned your personal history with racism and your ministerial ancestors. Yeah. I, I think that's something that we hear talked about a lot of the role that different denominations, different pastors, different congregations played from during slavery, abolition and civil rights and just kind of the different histories and the sometimes painful histories on both sides there. How are you personally grappling with racism and what are your congregants expressing to you during these times? Yeah, well, let me that about my my ancestry. You know, I was um, I was a child in Anniston. That's where I grew up when the Freedom Riders and the bus was toppled and uh, burned and the, and the Freedom Riders burned. I was a small child, but somehow that's part of my story. I, I don't know how, but I was probably shaped by the impact of that. When I was a kid, I remember the largest crowd we ever had in our church. And I'm not, not, not proud of this, but we, the, the Georgia governor, oh gosh, he was the governor when George Wallace was governor, carried the big ax handle. Y'all are too young to remember him. Um, oh gosh, the segregationist governor, sorry. Anyway, the largest crowd we ever had was when he came and spoke at our church. And I, as a kid, I thought, why are so many people here uh, to hear him? I'll think about, I'll think of his name later on in the podcast, but um, I was, I'm sure I was shaped by that. And then the white ministers that were good people, I'm sure in the sixties who just, who just didn't say anything and who even encouraged Martin Luther King to slow down and, you know, don't move, uh, don't move too fast. So that's part of my, 
my heritage. And, um, and here's another thing I, about the Confederate statue, and I think we may get there later, but when I was thinking about the Confederate statue, I had to ask myself, what would I have done in the 1860s? You know, if I'd been a pastor, I'd like to think that I would have preached against slavery, but I, I don't know that. I'd like to think if I'd been a father, I would have forbade my sons to go fight uh, for the Confederacy, but I can't, I can't say that. I would like to, to think had I been a young man, I would not have fought in gray, but I, I don't know that. I'm, I, I would have been a product of my time, and so I have to, um, I, I have to deal with that as I, again, not getting stuck, but moving forward. And so, you know, at, at church, I'm, I write about it in our newsletter. I speak every time I can at the Edmund Pettus Bridge thing recently, I mean, or before that, the commemoration of, of the lynchings here in uh, Madison County. Uh, I'm trying to be as involved as I can, and quite frankly, I'm still in learning mode. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm learning more than I'm teaching about racism. Dana, I want to kick it over to you, but before I do, and, and we leave Travis for a second, um, Travis, what are your what are your congregants expressing to you at the First Baptist Church? Well, we do have a a, a, a broad variety of backgrounds and even opinions. We're we're not as diverse ethnically as I wish we were, but we are politically diverse. And so, on the one hand, there are those who would like for me to focus on just the positive things, but on the other hand, I'm getting a lot of encouragement and uh, really good feedback for my involvement in. Uh, in conversations about race around the city. So I think we're probably reflective of um, the white community in a lot of ways, where some wonder what all the fuss is about and others are really, really engaged in the conversation and wanting to learn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dana uh, Gillis, 24-year FBI agent, I believe. I think we said that in the introduction. Yeah, 24 um, years. 24 years. There's so much to cover on this topic, and we obviously can only begin to touch it here on our show, but I'd like to talk to you about the police. Uh, On the one hand, there certainly are men and women in blue who are serving every day with honor and distinction, and there's just no doubt about that. On the other hand, the police have unjustly bullied, victimized, brutalized, even killed. That's all been on tape in some cases as was the case with Mr. Floyd. What's going on inside our police departments? Please help us understand that. Well, Mary Scott, that is a really good question, and I wish I had the answer as to what's going on in policing and law enforcement. But I think the first thing that I'd like to recognize, and you said it uh, in your question as you opened up, is that you know I want people to recognize that the vast majority of police officers They've come to the profession as a calling. You know, for them, it's all about service, and it's not just a job. But the other thing that I would say is that policing in our country is really a reflection of the same problems that are faced by society in general. Uh, If you've got racism in society at large, that racism is also going to be found in policing because it's uh, made up of people in the society. And just like any other profession, Uh, you're going to probably find racism in other professions because of the makeup of the people that uh, are in our society. You know, in giving this issue some thought over the past few days, I came to the conclusion that what we're seeing today is uh, barely a glimmer of what we may have seen 
if we roll the clock back 50 or 60 years. Uh, but what we're seeing now are kind of the highlight reels of the bad actors in the profession. And I would dare say that uh, those are individuals that probably had no uh, business in policing in the first place. 50 to 60 years ago, we didn't have a 24-hour news cycle. We didn't have uh, the Internet, no body cameras, no cell phones. And I think now we've got a proliferation of ways to capture what today's officers are doing. And it's put uh, policing under a well-deserved microscope. Uh, when you think about the officers and the power that they have, that's why this scrutiny is well-deserved. When I was at uh, Quantico, one of the first things I heard on our induction day, when they wanted to make sure that we were committed to this field, the first thing the instructor says is, all right, you all are here today because you want to be special agents of the FBI, but here's what that really means. You've got the power that other people in this society don't. You've got the power to take someone's liberty, and you also have the power, if it's warranted, to take someone's life. And if you don't think you can do those two things, then you need to make a decision to leave now. That's why we need to really look at what uh, police are doing. And to know that you've got that power, that's a very sobering thing for the rank and, fi uh, rank and file of policing. Um. I'll just say one other thing and then I'll let you back in. But I think one of the problems in our society is that police are called upon to, to solve some of society's problems that our leaders don't have the political will to tackle in earnest. You think about the homeless, the response is let the, pe let the police deal with it. The mentally ill on the streets, let the police handle it. Domestic violence, let the police handle it. And I think the women and men in the profession, they aren't properly equipped to deal with some of those issues, and they have not been trained to handle those things that are probably more suitably handled by a sociologist and the psychiatric profession. I think you make a really good point there of it, you know, it, any profession is going to be reflective of the society that the people come from. Um, so there, there are probably equally num equal numbers of racist cashiers and teachers and any other profession, but those people don't have that power to take life and liberty. And so it, you really do see kind of, oh man, I, the, the way you put it was just so perfect. And I'm, I don't even want to try to restate it in my own words, but just you, you, you do see so much, you know, so many of those outcomes, those negative outcomes that are broadcast so widely now. Um, and I, I, I agree with you that it's a very deserved spotlight, but what, what can we, what can we do to make some of those reforms that you're suggesting here of, of allowing policing to be policing and then having those hard conversations about the psychiatric care, having those hard conversations about the reforms necessary. Well, I think you can't <clears throat> look at policing in a vacuum, and that seems to be one of the problems that we have. And with police being in this vacuum where they're not connected to people that have those uh, professional specializations like uh, sociology, like psychology, psychiatry, they're kind of on an island of their own. Mm -hmm. And I think what we've done with policing in this country, even the way that we talk about it, we talk about it in terms of law enforcement. And that's exactly what our officers do. You break a law, it gets enforced. You break a law, there's got to be some sort of uh, 
justice meted out or some consequence. And I think we need to move away from the term law enforcement and redefine what policing means in the United States. You know, I studied uh, over in England for a bit when I went to the uh, British Police Staff College. And I loved learning about how the police service in the UK differs so much from what we do here in the United States. Their police service is based on a premise of policing by consent. And Mm. they have civilian oversight of their police agencies. And civilian oversight allows the police agencies to be controlled through the power of the purse. So you've got to come to the people to get the money that you need in order for your police service to be equipped, funded to actually do its job. And that's not the way we operate here in the United States. Like I said, we're more focused on enforcement as opposed to redefining what policing means. And Rachel, I know you, you've you got your hand raised and you're going to kick it over to Daniel. But before we do, can I just follow up there, Dana, and ask, is that the concept of a constabulary or a constable? Uh, yeah, they have constabularies. Uh, their system is much smaller than in the U.S. They've got uh, 46 uh, constabularies in their police service across the country, whereas in the United States, one of our difficulties is sheer size and scope with over 18,000 police agencies in this country. Yeah, much bigger. So before, uh, Rachel, you go, I just, can I ask you, like, I think people are wondering, is it, is there one thing or two or three things that you can point to recruiting, pay, funding, training, the effects of organized labor? Is there, is it, is it mostly one of those, mostly two, three? Is it, is it any, is it all of them? Is it all those and more? (laughs) And I know we can't cover all that, but Solve all of our problems for us, Dana. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. Well, that's but a big those, charge, but I've got this. I got this. <laughs> no, I think you're right. It is all of those things. And I think, you know, as I was thinking about one of the things that we don't do well in policing is just in the initial screening process. You know, there's no real psychological screening protocol for most police agencies. And that is somewhat disturbing because you do get people that come into the profession that probably have no business there to begin with. And when I was uh, working in Houston, I was assistant special agent in charge. And one of the programs I was over was crimes against children. And we had individuals that would go undercover online dealing with child predators. Well, every six months, I would sit down with the officer or agents that were involved in this And we would ask how they were doing from a mental standpoint, because individuals that did that line of work, you opted in or you opted out whenever you wanted to. And we need to do that with all of our individuals in law enforcement. I mean, we do things to make sure that they're still truthful, that they haven't come under undue undue influence relative to uh, being financially blackmailed or anything along those lines but we don't do anything with the psychological health of an officer until it gets to a crisis point for an individual. Something that needs to be added to the mix that could make a very big difference. Uh, I really appreciate you diving into just the nuance and the complexity of, of that piece of it. Sam Harris actually has a highly helpful podcast called making sense 
I think he does a good job of exploring some of these topics as well. For any of our listeners, you might want to dive into that a little deeper. But Daniel, I, I want to ask you so much of what you do at the Hogan Family Why, and I know the Why the organizationally on, on a national level really brings highly diverse people from all walks of life together. You and I have talked at length about many of the things that you have seen during your time in leadership. So tell us sort of what's on your heart to add to this discussion. What do you hope for our community, our nation? What are some of your thoughts? Well, um, Luna, what I look at it is there was a kind of a story told about a pastor writing a sermon. And uh, he was in the process of writing the sermon. And his, uh, his child came in and was, was interrupting him because he wanted to play with him. And uh, pastor, hey, give me five minutes uh, to finish up the sermon. Sure enough, the kid comes back two minutes later and says, you know, daddy, 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 we come on play with me. Uh, so pastor said, hey, what I'll do is I'll give him a puzzle to work on. And then once it works out the puzzle, then uh, they'll give me 10, 15 minutes to finish up my sermon. But lo and behold, the child comes back five minutes later and has completed the puzzle. And the pastor said to the child, you know, I gave you a puzzle. How'd you complete it so quickly? And the child said, well, what I did was this. I looked on two sides of the puzzle. One had the, the picture of the world on one side. Another one had a picture of a man's face. So what I said was I put the picture of a man's face together and the world came together. And what I looked at was, what he looked at was that whether you're black, white, Asian, Latino, whatever you are, you put the man together, the world can come together. And a lot of times we, whether it's housing, whether it's education, whether it's employee opportunities, if everyone gets a fair shot and fair opportunity and we're putting everyone together, not just certain populations, great things will happen. Um, one of the things that I look at with our with the Y organization as a whole and, and, and here locally is, I mean, at my Y alone, we have over 33 different languages spoken here. Now, I can't speak 33 different languages, but I can look at people's heart and try to help with people. Each and every person comes in the door. I can stress to the staff team and all the people that everyone needs to be treated fairly. Everyone needs to be treated with respect. Everyone needs to be treated like they're the most important people that come through this door. Um, and as we uh, go through our day-to-day lives, we have opportunities on opportunities, power moments, opportunities to be able to make a difference in someone's life on a daily basis. And that's why I try to look at it. Um, there's different whys across the country that are battling this, these challenges right now. Um, there's, we have a, a different webinars. We have one coming up, which has some, you know, Kamala Harris on it has some, some key, some key leadership to really look at this issue. And it's unfortunate we've come to this point, but it's great. And um, uh, one of the things that you look at is it's going to be uncomfortable for people. But we got to be comfortable when being uncomfortable to make sure we can make a difference and make some changes. What are some of your recommendations for for good hearted folks who really want to dive into this conversation, want to understand, want to listen and learn? How how would you recommend that that people do that? I say having conversations like this, um, but also action behind your conversations. Um, one of these conversations is a thing called uh, white slanting in which uh, you try to over-talk or, or condescend someone who, who shares a heart. Um, Rachel, you and I talked uh, was a, a week and a half ago and just had some great conversation. And you never once during that conversation tried to um, explain for me what I was feeling, what I was experiencing. So I think those type of things and, and actually not being silent when you see situations and circumstances that occur. And um, that, that sets the tone for a lot of things that we do. Um, when I was in college, you know, and it's not to pat myself on the back, but one of the things that I did was um, one of the, my, uh, my roommate, uh, he was Caucasian, and we grew up, went to high school together and went to college together. Well, 
um, all the basketball players, a lot of us sat together and, you know, we're predominantly African-American players and uh, he sat with us. Well, there's a movie that came out years ago and um, that Mississippi burning in our campus. And they had some conversations. And one of the things that happened was there was kind of a rally of protests uh, about Mississippi burning and how they impacted our campus. Well, every day they would sit with us and no problems. Well, during that time, the entire African-American population sat at one table and he sat there as well. And one of the young ladies said to him, so why are you sitting here, David? You know, you're not one of us. So he picked up his tray and sat at another table. Well, you know, I always read my parents told me to just do right people. Loyalty and friendship and relationships are more important than just, just causes. So I picked up my tray and sat with him. And he said, you don't need to do that. I said, yes, I do, because a friendship is much more important, and we need to set a stand that all of us can get together and make a difference. From that, I got two of my, a few of my other best friends from the situation because they understand that I would be with them loyal, with loyalty in spite of what situation and circumstances. So having those kind of questions, having those conversations, and really working together as um, people, all people, um, and no matter where you're from, and, and just being able to listen and learn from each other. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's uh, I'm sitting here thinking about choices and crossroads, and if everybody made the right choice in the moment that the choice arrived, we certainly wouldn't be here. I, I mean, I'm a product of my time. Everyone's a product of their time. It's, it's, you know, it's to, to transcend above your time is, is a rare thing. And so I'm not suggesting that I always do that, but as I sit here, I'd love to go back and show a crystal ball to people and who, who participated in slavery and in Jim Crow who supported it and say, look at the hell you will wreak in the future on our country. And I, I, some days I just wish that could be a reality. Obviously it's, you know, it's, it's wishful thinking, but powerful testimony. Thank you, Daniel. Um, Travis, I want to come back to something that you mentioned at the beginning. I understand you went before the County commission recently in support of relocating a Confederate monument. Would you talk to us about your decision to do that and how that went? Yeah, so, um, you know, on the, by the way, Lester Maddox was the governor, I couldn't remember whose name I couldn't remember a while ago. Um, yeah, on, on the base of that monument, it says something about the heroes who fell, and then the phrases, for the principles that gave birth to the Confederate movement, so, um, or Confederate cause. And so, um, you know, it made me think, that's not just about those boys and men that went out to fight for the Southland. It was about the principles that gave rise or gave birth to the Confederate cause. So I asked myself, what were those principles? Well, you know, Southern pride, well, I'm full of Southern pride, so I get that. Or states' rights, I understand states' rights. You know, there are some good debates now about states' rights. But um, but ultimately, in my heart, I know that the principle that gave cause or gave birth to the Confederate cause was slavery. I mean, there, I don't think, I think we can um, explain our way around that, but or we can try, but we can't. That was, it was, it was a willingness to divide our country over the cause of slavery. And so that means that monument represents um, the fact that my, my Alabama ancestors were on the wrong side of a bad war uh, it represents an army intent on enslaving uh, Daniel's and Dana's ancestors. And um, that's not a cause that 
I want to, I want to be associated with. And I do, I think there's some really good hearted people who say, but it's, it's heritage and history. And I get that. So let's just relocate it. It shouldn't be at the seat of our County government. You know, I, I've wondered, you know, it, I won't chase this rabbit, but you know, the, the, the monument toppling and defacing and all that. I wonder where that's going to stop. I used to think Jesus would be the only one left. And now they're taking down statues of Jesus in Europe. So I don't know how far this is going to go, but about our monument, it says the principles that gave birth to the Confederate cause. And I'm, that's just, that just not, does not represent me. And uh, I think it should be in a place where it can be historic, but not, culture shaping. Can I jump in for a second, Travis? Cause you said something that was uh, really interesting about where does it stop when it comes to the statues and yeah. people pulling those down at James Madison university, they are having a very large debate about that because there are three dormitories on campus that were named after civil war generals, uh, Turner Ashby, uh, general uh, Jackson. And I forgot what the other one was. Well, at any rate, the school has decided that they're going to change those names. But the question wow. has come up, James Madison was a slaveholder. And people are asking, well, you're going to change the name of the university. And I think the uh, university president eloquently put it and said, yeah, James Madison was a flawed individual in that regard. But he was always cognizant of trying to move toward the higher ideals of what wow. the country could be about. So... I think that's what you have to do is to define where that stopping line is. It's not like we're trying to totally erase history, but it's about who we honor and why we honor individuals and putting that into context. Yeah. That's, I think that's an important piece of nuance. And I've got a, a question for you, Dana, but before I ask that question, I want to jump back to something that Daniel said a minute ago about getting comfortable being uncomfortable and Y'all, if you've listened to this show, my friends know this. When I get uncomfortable, I start cracking jokes. I want to make people laugh. I want to make people feel uncomfortable or get out of that uncomfortability. And so this is something that has just been such a, I think there are a lot of people who, who resonate with that. And this is something that I've tried to be more cognizant of. And I, I want to know if you have more tips of just like, how do you, how do you do that? How do you not try to turn everything? You know, it, it, I think, like I said, I don't want to turn things into something just to feel more comfortable, but how do you have those, how do you sit in that discomfort? Well, everyone has something to offer, different personalities, and it's good to laugh about some situations and not saying the, the it's funny what's going on, but it's good to have something where you can, ha uh, it brings out a different side of people. Um, and, you know, if someone asked me the other day, you know, how do you deal with raising children? And, you know, you see sometimes you have to laugh and, and look at situations that are, that, that, that it's uncomfortable conversations sometimes with them, but you laugh. And my, my daughter, you know, for instance, my, my sons were different than my daughter. And my daughter is very disciplined and, and she does get some work done and things. And you talk about going to Jemison uh, later on, Mary Scott. You know, my daughter is ninth grader, uh, just got her GPA back and it was 3.75. So I was excited <laughs> about that. And there's no way to get a parent and say, well, I remember ninth grade, I had a 4.0. I had 1.0 the first semester, 1.4 second semester, 1.3 the fourth semester. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, but I was able to kind of explain it. You got to laugh about some situations and look at things where uh, you may not like the result all the time, but you continue to have those conversations and you bring a certain personality to the conversation. 
and uh, understanding that that you need that sometimes just to, to bring people together. Daniel, I want to leapfrog off of that. It's funny in our in our marriage, uh, my role, what I bring to the table, is to be the devil's advocate, and so Pepper sometimes gets very frustrated because he wants me to, you know, we're going down this line, but I might say, but, but what about, and I think in honest conversations, there are those people who bring that to the table. They might not even be disagreeing, certainly not disagreeing with the heart of the message, but there is that role of asking, asking questions to find a, a better way forward. So what role does, and is that a role that's legitimate at this moment? And how do we how do we do that in, in, a, in a respectful way with the goal of, of finding the good way forward? Well, I think just us getting together things like this, where we're having some, some conversations with key leaders, I think it's going to be important. Um, we live in a great area, Huntsville-Madison area, and I think our leadership is really committed to making a change. And they're open to hearing different conversations, hearing people's opinions and doing this. So I think we all play a role in that that there's no uh, uh, big, big eyes and small use, as they say, and, but all of us play a role. So I think speaking up on behalf of all people, I think that's where we all played a role. I mean, things like this, like a, like a podcast, like a uh, community conversation, and, and just all of us saying that we have a role to play. Um, may not be the leading role all the time, but everyone has a voice in this whole process. Dana, man. The protests that have been mounted in cities and towns across America have sometimes, you know, gone from being peaceful during the daytime to violent at nighttime. We've seen tear gas and rubber bullets used to disperse crowds, including tear gas used up in, in Huntsville and protesters damaging, beating and vandalizing. Um, obviously, the killing of George Floyd and just all those other names that we hear and, and see those reports of, they, they were the spark of the fire. But how, in your opinion, did this stack of dry wood get built? Oh, that really is a very good question. And I think you really have to go all the way back to 1619 and the start of the slave trade in our country. Uh, you know, the first slaves came into a place called Point, Point Comfort, which uh, actually was where my hometown is in Hampton, Virginia. And I was telling Travis during a conversation we had just last week the arc of my life has gone from where slavery started in Port Comfort, uh, Point Comfort to Alabama, where the last known African slaves were brought from the African continent to the United States. So that's kind of come full circle. But I think the pallet upon which that stack of wood had been built that you've talked about goes back to 1619. And you have to look at the centuries of systemic oppression through 250 years of slavery, another 100 years plus of Jim Crow and civil rights violations, and then followed by the country's institutions failing to live up to the ideals of the Constitution. So that's built up a lot of pressure and frustration where people have realized that, look, our country has to reckon with its past, warts and all. I think we have to do kind of what South Africa did uh, when apartheid fell, and they had the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. That was an opportunity for people to have a forum to express all of the hurt and the anger and the fear that took place during apartheid. I think the death of George Floyd and the look on the face of that officer who took Floyd's life was a reflection in the mirror that 
our country didn't like what it sought. And now it's come to a point where it decided to do something about it. But some of the violence and the outpouring of raw emotion that you've seen in the aftermath of George Floyd's death is a product of that 400 year history of slavery, racism, and oppression. And now the question is, what are we going to do about it as a country so that we can move on? Dana, I really appreciate what you just said. Um, thank you. Thank you for those powerful words and that, and that, and that look of history. It is, that is the stack of dry wood. It's a, it's a, it's a big stack of dry wood and there was a spark and everyone now is affected. Even if you think you're not affected, you're mm-hmm. affected. And everyone can be part of a solution. Some of the things that Daniel talked about today, they can be part of that solution if they so choose. Playing a small part, a large part, medium-sized part, you can, you can, you can be part of the solution. Uh, Dana, before we leave you, and I kick it over to, um, to Travis and Daniel, uh, you have this incredible experience in law enforcement, 24 years in the FBI, all your studies in law enforcement. You're the first black president uh, of one of the largest Rotary clubs in the country. Uh, Give us some takeaways to think about, please. Well, I think that this all starts with what we're doing right here, right now, which is listening to each other. And as part of that listening process, I think the country has to acknowledge that horrible things were done to people of color and to natives of this land as our country was built. But with that being said, we're not asking you as people of today's society to feel guilty about that. We just want you to recognize and truthfully put out through history that this is what transpired but this is the path that we have taken to this day, but we're still moving toward that more perfect union. And we're still trying to uh, get to the ideals, realize the ideals of how this country uh, should act going forward. And I think only through acknowledging our past, can we as a people go forward as a nation with regard to policing. I think we need to go back and take a look at, This thing called the use of deadly force and deadly force policies. I think it's important that we review what that means all the way through American law enforcement, from federal to state to municipal police agencies, and get to the point where we can engage with the people that we have sworn to protect and to serve and realize that we are part of that group. It's not an us versus them uh, mentality, which I've heard a lot of as police agencies respond to the crisis that we're in. You know, one thing that I would mention, and it deals with this thing of defunding the police. You know, it's not about defunding the police. It should be a focus on a smarter use of joint agency assets Mm -hmm. to kind of tackle the problems that officers see on a routine basis. And I wanted to say that we have a model right here in Huntsville when uh, you deal with a multidisciplinary approach to crimes against children, and that's over at the National Children's Advocacy Center. Uh, They bring together medical professionals, social workers, police, and prosecutors to stand by a child who's been the victim of Mm -hmm. exploitative crime. 
And I think that is probably approach to law enforcement or to policing that you can actually expand in other areas so that we can try to diffuse situations on the street as opposed to putting officers in a position where they're just not equipped to handle dealing with those uh, societal issues that they're faced with on a daily basis. Travis at First Baptist Church and Daniel at the Hogan Family YMCA, um, what are you hearing from people and, and, and what are you doing as leaders of your organization to be part of the healing? And we've kind of already talked about that, but this is the time for the, for the takeaways. You know, what are the, what are the big things that, that you can think of that you'd like to leave with our Curvies as we close out our show? Uh, Dana mentioned earlier looking into the face of the police officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck, and, and it was reflection in the mirror that we didn't like. And I think that reminds me of the 16th, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in the early mm-hmm. 1960s. It was the same kind of thing. It, we took, I think, several steps forward after that bombing because we looked into the mirror and we said, that's that's not who we, we want to be. And so I'm, I'm frankly encouraged. Um, I'm encouraged by the conversations that I hear. You know, I have friends all over Huntsville, but of course my closest relationships are within our congregation. And I am encouraged. Even those who wonder why are people so mad, at least they're beginning now to listen. And it seems to me people are beginning to listen in ways that we didn't uh, before. And so I'm. Th- this feels a little bit like one of those pivotal moments in history to me. And um, so I'm encouraged by what I'm hearing from people who before have thought, come on, we've got, we've gone along. Let's celebrate how far we've come. Now I think people are more open to learning what the next step forward is. So that's why I'm encouraged. And, and that's why at at our congregation, I'm, I'm just trying to fan that flame because this does feel like such an historic moment for us. Yeah, and, um, you know, uh, appreciate those words. Um, one of the things that we look at also is uh, we're having some community conversations with the why. Um, there's some things that can be set up with our organiz- uh, whole organization. But I think it's a day-to-day thing and what we do in talking with people and not making it awkward or uncomfortable, but just having some conversations. I mean, it's it basic. It doesn't have to be a forum like this. You just be coming across people and just having a conversation and, and being open to not thinking that anytime um, a person of a different uh, race that asks you some questions is has a ulterior motive, but also that person they're they're gonna argue with you. But just have a conversation and say it's okay to have to see different things differently, but we need to address the situations and points that are going on. And I think we've waited too long to do that. Um, and we've, we're kind of in a bubble here with Madison and Huntsville. That some, some things are great that this is an opportunity for us to be able to rise to the next level and how we deal with situations and people and, and just never forget oh, oh, this moment in time and how we're uh, an opportunity to impact uh, uh, future for our, future generations for our children and, and leave a legacy that we were a part of this moment that changed history. So I'm ex- we're excited about that. Gentlemen, thank you. We are going to provide information in the show notes so that our Kirby community can reach out to each of you. We are very much appreciative of each of you for coming on our show and talking to us about this very important topic. Thank you, gentlemen. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. It was a lot of honor. 
Connect with Bell Curve on Facebook. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcast. Please leave us a review. It really helps us. See you next time.